This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Tejas Parashar. My guest today is Professor Daniel Lee from UC Berkeley. We'll be discussing his exciting new book on the history of sovereignty as a concept. Daniel Lee is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He specializes in political theory, the history of political thought, and jurisprudence. His research concerns the reception of Roman and canon law in later medieval and early modern political thought and their influence on modern doctrines of statehood, sovereignty, and rights, especially in the legal and political thought of Jean Baudin, who we'll be discussing today, Hugo Grotius, and Thomas Hobbes. More generally, he has been interested in the relationship between legal science and social science in the history of ideas, and his wider interests in political theory also include the foundations of democratic theory, the theory of rights, constitutional theory, republicanism, and the philosophy of the social sciences. Daniel is the author of two books, The Right of Sovereignty, Jean Baudin on the Sovereign State and the Law of Nations, published by Oxford University Press in 2021, which we'll be discussing today. And this book examines the origins of sovereignty as the vital organizing principle of modern international law in the legal and political thought of its most influential theorist, Jean Baudin. Daniel's first book, Popular Sovereignty in Early Modern Constitutional Thought, published by Oxford in 2016, traced the juridical origins of modern popular sovereignty doctrines in the legal science of the Roman law tradition. He's currently preparing a new critical edition of Baudin's Outline of General Jurisprudence, also to be published by Oxford, in the Oxford History and Theory of International Law series. Daniel is a previous winner of the APSA Leo Strauss Award, the Forkosh Prize from the Journal of the History of Ideas, and a Mellon Fellowship in the Columbia Society of Fellows. Prior to his arrival at Berkeley, he taught political theory at the University of Toronto and at Columbia University. He serves on the advisory boards of the Berkeley Program in Medieval Studies, the Kaddish Center for Morality, Law, and Public Affairs, and as faculty affiliate of the Designated Emphasis in Renaissance and Early Modern Studies at UC Berkeley. Daniel holds degrees from Columbia, Oxford, and Princeton. Daniel, welcome to the New Books in Intellectual History program. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So first of all, could you just give us a sense of who Jean Baudin, who is the topic uh, of the book we'll be discussing today, who Jean Baudin was? Um, so he lived from 1530 to 1596, as we know, which is a pretty tumultuous period in French history. Yes, that's right. Um, Baudin was professionally trained as a lawyer uh, at the University of Toulouse and taught for a very brief time as an untenured lecturer. And as uh, that failed, he then decided to try his hand as a practitioner in Paris. Uh, He then had a career in royal service and he spent some time there, which uh, became more complicated because of the French wars of religion. His entire life was framed by the political problems that resulted from the Reformation as it entered into France. And the French wars of religion, as they're usually called, was really a civil war, which was divided along confessional lines. And much of the scholarship on Baudin, particularly his political thought, has really tried to try to focus on the question how divisions, whether political, religious, philosophical, um, can somehow be overcome uh, by the creation of some common sovereign authority that may bring together these uh, divisive, disparate elements of one uh, common state, one common society. And so his solution to that uh, has been 
typically been seen as his theory of sovereignty. Sovereignty was the answer to political division. Right. Uh, and so you're, you know, you're just at a personal level, your last book was on the theme of popular sovereignty in the early modern period. What drew you now to, to working on Bojan? Well, when I when I wrote the book on popular sovereignty, I already had two chapters on Baudin in there. And I I was just so fascinated by Baudin that I, I felt like I had a lot more I needed to say about him. Um, there was, you know, when I wrote the popular sovereignty book, I was only really interested in Baudin's theory of sovereignty um, with respect to democracy. And so I was in, in the first book, I was really trying to trace how did how did Baudin answer the question? Um, whether or not it was possible for sovereignty to take a democratic form. And, you know, many readers of Baudin in previous generations of scholarship have assumed simply that, well, Baudin is an anti-democratic, illiberal thinker. How could he possibly square together sovereignty with theories of democracy? And yet, actually, when one reads the text, one of his most important historical examples was the Roman Republic, which he consistently described as a pure democracy. Um, now, we can go into some reasons why he arrived at that conclusion, um, but that opened up, um, it, it opened up a, a lot of different areas of research for me, a lot of different questions about um, what, what Bodin's potential contribution has been not only to democratic theory, um, but what he might have to say about other areas um, in political theory and social thought that may not have been explored or may not have been answered or uh, investigated, uh, at least to the degree of detail that I think it deserves. And so the second book on Baudin really was my attempt to explore some of these unanswered questions um, that, that were sort of in the background for me. Right. So could you give our listeners uh, just a sense of the kinds of things that Baudin wrote? Uh, so you mentioned the the, the uh, topic of the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know the, the, the kind of his, his major work, the six books of the Commonwealth. What kinds of topics does he talk uh, touch on in, in his kind of corpus of writings? Well, he, you know, he started off as a, yeah, as a humanist. And so he had a lot of earlier writings that focused on, um, uh, it, well, he had, he had a translation on uh, hunting. It was uh, it was a translation of an earlier work that he tried his hand at, um, uh, you know, as a humanist to see if that might be one way of approaching. He wrote another work that uh, that touched upon issues of education of the youth. Um, and then later on, he decided that you know maybe I should try becoming uh, a legal theorist. And so he wrote a number of short treatises on investigating specific topics of law, such as uh, contracts. Uh, He had a number of discussions about um, jurisdictions, which was a very popular topic among legal theorists. And he assembled them together in, I think, what was actually a very short work. It was was an outline um, that was intended to be used by law students and practitioners. It was supposed to give uh, one common, uh, easily accessible picture of what all legal systems should look like. And this was uh, this is called the Juris Universi Distributio, the a, a division of the entire legal system, and and this is actually the work that I'm preparing for. In addition, that you mentioned before, um, mm-hmm. it, it was part of a genre that many lawyers were interested in doing at this time, which was um, how can we break free from this intoxication of using ancient legal systems to try to reform modern legal systems? And the ancient legal system, of course, that Bowden was most concerned about was Roman law, um, and so. Some of his earlier writings were very much uh, within this uh, within this school of thinking that, I mean, it was a very insular technical way of thinking about how to interpret uh, Roman law properly. At a certain point, however, he decided that, you know, maybe we need to think about some more methodological concerns about how to use historical sources. And so his first major publication, which was first released in 1566, uh, was the method of the proper understanding of history. And this was uh, the. It, it's important for a number of different reasons because it gives a sense of how Bowden used historical sources um, that would become sort of his raw material that he would use later on in his political theory. Um, but it was also his first attempt at writing a first draft of his overall theory of the state, his theory of sovereignty and the law, and that was in chapter six of that work of the Methodists. Mm-hmm. Fast forward. Uh, ten years later, and you finally arrive at his his major work of political theory, the six books on the state, uh, the De Republica, and you know that immediately becomes 
you know, establishes reputation as uh, as an authority on state sovereignty and and all the different elements of how to govern a state properly. Um, later on in life, he moves away from political theory, and he, he I mean, he's he's a very prolific writer, but he writes a number of treatises that other Bowdoin scholars have been interested in. For example, he writes a treatise on how to prosecute witches uh, that has its own uh, afterlife and its own legacy that many scholars have been interested in. He writes a work on uh, natural philosophy, a work called The Theater of Nature, and probably one of his most mysterious works that has also attracted a lot of attention towards the end of his life, which is the Colloquium of the Seven, uh, which is a discussion of natural religion. And it's in this work that Bodin offers his own theory, um, some of his thoughts about religious pluralism and the importance of tolerance in religiously divided society. So very much a reflection of his experience of mm-hmm. some of the most violent periods of the French wars of religion. So you can see that he he's he's very much a polymath. Um, he he's he's a man of incredible learning. Um, uh, Pierre Bale once described him as one of the most cunning men in France, and he's you know he's certainly. Uh, he certainly has acquired that reputation because of the many different areas of learning in which he, uh, he, you know, he provided his own uh, learning and scholarship. But I, but for my purposes, I've, I've really only been focused on his, his legal theory, his legal historical background and focusing on how that has shaped his own understanding of what sovereignty is, because it's, it's something that I think still shapes how international law um, constitutional theory, and of course, some of the major areas of political theory uh, still use that concept. Um, you know, Bozen is still cited as an authority by some courts, the U.S. Supreme Court, the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Um, there are recent cases where Bodin is still cited as one of the major authorities on this issue. And that that was one of my motivations for thinking, you know, maybe it's time for a, a new study on Bodin, just to mm-hmm. go back and see how he arrived at this concept that we, we, we still seem to be... Um, we, we, we're still stuck with it, you know, as much as some want to get away from it, it seems. Yeah, no, that's great. And I want to touch on uh, Budan's legacy and how he's been received in a second. But uh, one thing that strikes me about his biography is the fact that he's also interested in legal practice. Uh, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, he's writing for pra- practice to be read by practitioners as well. Um could could you say a little bit about this? Is this common for his time? I mean, is, is there a kind of... Uh, is is he intending to have his work make that? Is he intending for his work to have a public impact, as it were? Um, I, I'm not sure about a public impact, but definitely an impact so that his writing could be taken seriously by lawyers, um, those who would have had the same sort of legal training as he had, um, those who had, would have gone through the period of. Uh, university training in civil law, uh, as as Bowdoin did in, when when he was at Toulouse, um, and so in there there are a number of writings where it, it it's pretty clear what his intended readership was, which were for professionally trained lawyers, those who are about to go before the bar and argue their cases, um, and you'll find that in the Distributio. Unfortunately, some of the shorter tracts that he had written. Um, he had ordered to be burned uh, on his deathbed. So unfortunately, we don't have access to them. But And, and I think it's because Bodin realized that these were um, you know, just drafts and, and they were superseded by many of his later works. Um, just a couple more things just to say on this. Um, when, when Bodin was in the Parliament of Paris and you know, he was serving effectively as a kind of barrister, um, uh, he he had written a number of uh, what were called concilia, which were uh, sort of like legal briefs, but it was a specific genre that one finds only within civil law jurisdictions in this period. Um, apparently, at least one of them still survives. And um, and these were, these were styled specifically for um, arguing a particular side of a case that were presented before the court. Um, and, you know, it shows, I think, pretty well um, you know, the, the, the specifics of Bowdoin's legal learning, um, his ability to act as a lawyer, um, his ability to, uh, you know, to understand and see how legal practice um, is actually the more important area of being a lawyer rather than legal theory. I mean, there's, there's a famous passage in one of the prefaces to the later editions of the Republic where he says, um, one does not learn about justice simply through reading law books. One, one learns about justice and law 
um, by being in the forum and actually seeing mm-hmm. how argument from action, exception, before the judge, you can pull out basic principles of how justice operates. Um, just one final thing I want to say on this is that even when you look at his political theory texts, if you look at the margins, it's full of citations to legal authorities. Um, one of the things that I've struggled with, with my, uh, you know, when I teach Bodan to my students, is that in many of the English editions that we have available, um, the, the marginalia is not included. And so I usually have to reproduce them for my students and try to explain what is he doing with these sources? Why these sources? Why not other sources? Um, and, and that's been something that I've just been just been fascinated by for such a long time. Um, and, you know, we can talk about this a little bit later on because it, it opens up a completely different understanding of what Bodin is trying to do, it's, including on topics like sovereignty, like statehood, like contractual obligations, uh, some of which, uh, you know, I discussed in the book. Um, but but it's all integrated. You know, for him, political, legal theory are conjoined together. It, it can't be separated. Right. Hmm. So on that note, could you give us a sense of how Baudin has been understood in political and legal theory, uh, I, I especially sort of from, from the 19th century onwards? Uh, because he's often associated with a kind of monarchical absolutism, isn't he? He certainly is. And I, I think there's a... Well, I think there are a number of reasons, but I think the principal reason why he's acquired that reputation is because of the way he defines sovereignty. The very famous sentence, probably the the one sentence that if anybody reads Baudin, the the one that probably everyone encounters is the opening sentence of Book One, Chapter Eight. And, you know, you'll find this in all English editions, um, but it offers his definition of sovereignty, where he says that sovereignty is the perpetual and absolute power of the state. Now, for many interpreters, they they get stuck on this term absolute power. And, you know, and I, I think particularly for English language speakers, they see the term absolute power. It immediately triggers um, and, and aligns Bodin's theory with earlier traditions of political absolutism or absolute monarchy. Well, the, the, the thinking here is that, well, if Bodin thinks about sovereignty in terms of absolute power, well, surely he must have been a source for, say, the absolutism of the Stuart monarchy, the absolutism of the Sun King Louis the Fourteenth, or the enlightened absolutism of the Prussian monarchs. Um, and so, it's it's very easy to come to the conclusion that Baudin must be everything that we must not be. Right? He's he must be he must be the source of illiberalism. He must be the source of anti-democratic, uh, despotic uh, kind of rulership, and that never seemed quite correct to me um, in, in and there are a number of reasons why, but I, I'll just cite a couple of things. One is because as soon as he goes into his description of what the substance of absolute power is in that, in that theoretical discussion, he's very clear in saying that um, absolute power does not mean lawlessness. So anybody who has absolute power is still expected and required to observe the restrictions and the obligations of the Law of Nations, which is one of the big parts of the study that I'm offering, um, the Law of Nature, um, the Divine Law. Uh, so unlike the absolutism that one imagines, where kings, sovereigns, princes can do anything they want, actually, it seems that what Baudin does is he places all kinds of constraints, requirements, and obligations so that sovereigns are actually placed in a much, uh, much more of a concrete box. Uh, than many of his contemporaries. And and he did so on purpose. Um, and I think a lot of his explanation then goes into a discussion of what, you know, what he meant by absolute power, which is, you know, I guess we could talk about this later, but it's not what um, absolutists, for example, think. Now, just one, one more thing I just want to say on this, which is that this early interpretation of Baudin as, you know, someone who's celebrating absolutist or uh, monarchies or absolute monarchs um, really feeds into a lot of even modern scholarship. And, you know, so what, what happens by the time you get to, you know, the 1960s, just in the immediate post uh, uh, post world war two period, is that there's a body of scholarship where, you know, the experience of totalitarianism, the experience of, uh, you know, um, communism, uh, has led a, a whole generation of scholars, you know, think about Hannah Arendt, think about Hans Kelsen, 
uh, Jacques Maritain, um, all of them very suspicious of sovereignty. And so much of the scholarship coming out of that period looked backwards in time. Um, I think one very good example of this is Charles Howard McElwain and Harold Lasky, looking backward, historically trying to find the bad guys. Who was responsible for all of this um, all of this nonsense that we happen to find ourselves in? All this war, all this chaos, all this destruction. Whoever invented sovereignty must be the one really responsible. And so they point their fingers historically. Baudin becomes the big guy, right? He's the bad guy because here's a guy who talks about sovereignty as absolute power. And look at the mess we ended up in. So there was a kind of... Um, uh, sanitizing that had to take place, I think, in the scholarship of the later 20th century. Um, and so, you know, from that generation onwards, um, there's there was a clear uh, division, I think, that begins to emerge between the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys being constitutionalists, liberals, those who favor, um, uh, you know, democratic popular forms of rules. The bad guys being anybody who falls under the, under the banner of absolutism. Well, Bodan fits the bill perfectly, so he must end up on the on that other side. And I think a lot of what I've tried to do is go back to the basics about what the function of absolute power actually is within Bodan's theory. Um, and and there is a mismatch here that much of the book uh, tries to outline. That's fascinating. Uh, it I think it also parallels some of the scholarship on Rousseau in the twentieth century, sort of the rise of this view of a you know, potentially totalitarian Rousseau that's also projecting 20th century debates onto uh, a past figure. I, I think that's right. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a um, how would you describe this? I mean, I think there's a, a programmatic way, I think, of looking at many of these earlier thinkers that, you know, they were repurposing, as you say, Rousseau, Locke in some ways, you know, Locke becoming kind of a champion of a certain kind of appropriate form of rulership. Um, but, you know, I feel like there was... For much of the 20th century, it was part of this Cold War era um, program of, you know, read this person and you'll get a certain message out of that. But don't read this guy. Or if you do, um, you know, this is this is the sort of thing you don't want to follow. And and I think Bodin happened to have found himself on that category. Same with Rousseau, as you rightly point out. Now, against uh, this kind of 20th century interpretation, which I, I do think you're, you're right that it it has become the it has become the kind of orthodox interpretation of Buddha, you get you give us a more new and more nuanced account of his theory of sovereignty, and I just want to reconstruct a few elements of this theory. So, in chapter two, you argue that Bodin saw sovereignty as a quote legal right. So, what does it exactly mean for sovereignty to be a, a right? Yes, so. I think there. Let's back up first before we get into that question, because one of the reasons for that motivated this question, and indeed the whole uh, theory of rights in general, was the question whether or not the assertion of a subjective right requires some anterior law. Okay, so for example, let's say the right to drive. For example, when you have a driver's license, uh, you know what legal theorists will typically say is that well, one way to think about a driver's license is to think of it as a specific right that's granted um, to drivers who make the proper application according to the law. Um, but it's only because there is a, a law of, you know, the use, the proper use of motor vehicles, you know, that outlines specific permissions, permissible uses of vehicles, permissible uses of, uh, you know, um, you know, when drivers can make turns, when they can get onto the freeway and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's that anterior law that defines the boundaries of one's actionable rights. Um, in, in addition to this, it's also that anterior law that defines what one can do when one has been wronged. So think, for example, about, um, you know, basic contractual relations. Uh, you know, one of the things that Bodin loves to talk a lot about, and this is a good example of his use of legal theory and his knowledge of Roman law is think about debtor-creditor relations. You know, if you borrow money, every time you swipe your credit card, you become a debtor to a creditor. And that creates a contractual obligation where you bind yourself under the duty to perform your obligation of repaying what you've borrowed uh, to your creditor. Now, those sorts of relations always have to be defined according to some anterior law. Now, in the case of debtor-creditor relations, you know, there's uh, the, there are 
plenty of commercial laws within states as they exist today that provide those sorts of rules. You know, where I am right now in California, all kinds of commercial laws that will define these sorts of relations. Now, the same principle also applies in the exercise of sovereignty. Sovereigns who want to exercise certain things that are exclusive to them, the making and unmaking of law, the legal declaration of war, um, the, the, uh, the, the institution of courts, holding trials, um, you know, coining money, you know, all the sorts of things that Baudin identifies as being exclusive to sovereignty. He always uses the, the explicit language of rights, um, rights in the sense that they're exclusive to sovereigns, um, but that if sovereigns are somehow hindered or injured in the, in the attempt to exercise these rights, they have a legal claim. Now, in, this, in the case of sovereignty, there's a similar sort of pattern here that I think is analogous to the case of creditors and debtors. Um, so if a creditor has a right to demand the repayment of what has, been, uh, what has been borrowed by the debtor. So if the creditor isn't paid back on time, they can always take the debtor to court and then you know, the court will provide the, you know, the appropriate remedies as the law allows. The sovereign is in a similar position because the sovereign has a right to exercise all the rights of sovereignty. So, for example, and you know, the book will outline what you know many of these different rights are. So, and the most important of them is being the right to make and unmake law, that is, to bind and unbind subjects under legal obligations. Now, if if this is a right in the same way that the right to drive or the right to say um, you know demand performance uh, from a debtor. Um, one will necessarily want to ask the question in the same way that Bodin's contemporaries did. Well, what's the law that provides and defines the boundaries of rights that that uh, that also apply to sovereigns? His answer is going to be the law of nations, hmm. which is going to be the other aspect of this text, because um, sovereigns are exempt from their own laws. In fact, um, w- one of the most important concepts that Bodin uses in this work is the phrase legibus solutus, which comes from Roman law um, in book one of the of Justinian's Digest. And it, it's, it's the principle that sovereigns are not bound to obey laws of their own making. Right? So, it, so it's not so much their own positive legislation that sovereigns are bound by, but they're still constrained by legal obligations that derive from higher law. And the most important source that Bowdoin points to is the law of nations. Now, this law of nations performs two functions. It's obligatory in the sense that imposes certain obligations. It requires sovereigns to do certain things, for example, with respect to treaty obligations. But it also opens up certain uh, permissible actions that have the protection of law. So, for example, um, engaging in war. War is one of the permissions of the law of nations. You put that all together... Sovereigns also have rights, um, rights that are exclusive to states, um, but that don't apply in in other cases uh, to, say, individual subjects that don't apply to um, one of his contrary examples, pirates and robbers um, who are not entitled to assert these rights of sovereignty. Um, Anyway, but the but the rights of sovereignty derive from this higher legal source. And so when he says that sovereignty is a legal right, he has this whole um, legal framework in mind that that it's it's not unlike the way that we think about rights. For example, when we ask the question, uh, when can we sue? When can we go to court to assert the right that we've been denied? Right. Hmm. And where does the law of nations come from? Is it has it always existed as long as nations have existed, or did it kind of emerge at a particular point in history? Well, there there are two sources of what the law of nations uh, consists of, and the and this again you can find in the the Roman law tradition. But let me back up a little bit on this. When you open up to the first page of Justinian's Digest, um, one of the things that the Roman lawyers try to do is explain. Okay, Roman law has a number of different sources. Some of our sources of Roman law come from positive legislation. So uh, laws, senatus consults, uh, decrees of the emperor, etc. So that's all positive law. But there are some rules of Roman law that come from other sources, one of which is the law of nations. Now, in 
trying to explain what the law of nations is, the, the jurists give two contrary answers, one of which um, by this jurist named Hermogenianus, where he says that, well, the law of nations simply derives from the consent of nations. I, I think the best way to think of this is in terms of uh, comparative law. Um, so, you know, the Roman, so let, let me give you one example that, that often pops up. Um, all nations, it, it, this is in the context of the ancient world, but all nations will have some way of handling um, uh, property transactions, let's say. Um, now, the Romans have one way of doing it, but, you know, the Egyptians may have another way of doing it. The, the Gauls may have another way of doing it. The, His, the Hispania, there, there may be another way of doing it. So there may be local differences. But what the point of the jurists on this point is that all nations will agree in common that there are certain basic principles of how property transactions are to take place. So in Rome, you may require five witnesses and the striking of scales in order to transfer property. Um, but you don't need to go through all that. No, you don't have to go through that whole rigmarole. Uh, you know, there are other countries or other states that will all agree that a property transaction simply requires the delivery of the item that you're trying to give to, uh, to the recipient. Um, so if all nations agree, uh, or at least can in principle agree that there's some basic thin um, baseline of what certain legal principles or legal transactions are required, you might say that this is a principle that all nations can agree on. There can be consent among the nations on uh, certain legal principles. And, and it's not just about property transactions. This can cover things like warfare, um, property captured in war, um, uh, transactions between nations. So that's one way of thinking about the law of nations. There's another tradition that's associated with Gaius, and this is still on that first page of the digest, which says that uh, the law of nations is simply right reason. Um, and so there's, there are two contrasting traditions about what the law of nations consists in. Is it based on use? Is it based on uh, the consent of nations? Or is it based on uh, reason? Is it, is it something that, you know, the work of philosophers that can uh, try to derive what these uh, what these principles are. Fast forward to the Middle Ages, and many of the jurists really struggled with these two contrary positions on the law of nations. And they they actually attached different names to these. Some called it the primary uh, law of nations, some called it the secondary law of nations. Um, and it, you know, it, it raised different conclusions about what the law of nations allows. Um, it becomes potentially controversial uh, because the law of nations wasn't just about things like private transactions, property, these sorts of things. It also is the body of law that allows slavery. Um, and it, it's one of the ways in which there's a departure or at least, um, you know, a division between natural law, the law of nations and civil law, uh, because natural law, uh, you know, by nature, everyone is assumed to be free and equal. The law of nations allows a departure from this uh, mm. because, you know, all nations have some way of thinking about slavery. And so there's the, there are these contrary different legal rules that emerge. Um, anyway, so, so that's just a little bit of background here. So, so your question was, where is the law of nations? Where does that come from? Mm -hmm. And it's all of this, you know, it goes back to a lot of these different um, ways of viewing different legal traditions. Um, and from all of these, you know, all this, um, this massive data, all of these different, you know, legal examples that one can find. What Bodin is trying to do is pulling out general principles um, about sovereignty. You know, all nations observe, for example, that sovereignty allows warfare, for example, um, that there's a right to go to war. So, and this is not just the French, not just the Romans, you know, all nations agree on this. And so we may as well conclude that this is a general rule that applies to all nations. And that's the basic idea. Let me just say one final thing on this. Um, there, uh, the meaning of the term law of nations actually changes at a certain point. Um, because right around the time of, say, actually around Bowdoin's time and a little bit ap after him, the law of nations begins to mean something like international law. And so there's a big confusion, um, or at least uh, disagreement about 
what the function of the law of nations is supposed to be. And that's one of the reasons why when you get to Bentham, he is one of the reasons why he coins the term international law, specifically because mm-hmm. he looks back and says, look, the term law of nations has just gotten so confused. Sometimes people mean it to mean, use it to mean, um, uh, you know, the, the consent of all nations. Sometimes people use it to mean custom. Sometimes people use it to mean uh, the law of treaties. So let's just forget about the law of nations entirely. And, you know, that's why it's sort of fallen out of usage and international law is now uh, the term that we use. But Bowdoin was occupying a different period in legal history where it was still very much an active source of law. Um, uh, there's a there's a great article here, actually, that explains a lot of this background by Jeremy Waldron. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if any, any of your listeners are interested, I would recommend that uh, that article on um, on the law of nations. Very helpful. Great. Yeah. Um, and along with recognizing sovereignty, does the law of nations, uh, in Baudin's theory, does the law of nations also control the acts of sovereignty? Are there kind of limits that the law of nations imposes on sovereign states and, and how they behave and what they can do, what they can't do? Yeah, so there are actually two sides to this. Um, there, so, you know, as I mentioned before, that there, there are two ways of thinking about legal rights that derive from the law of nations, one of which is to think of it in terms of um, imposing obligations. So, the, you know, so think about preceptive laws that requires you to do something or prohibits you from doing something. But there's another way of thinking about the law that's, I guess you might describe it as being more permissive, uh, so that it it leaves... It opens up options or freedoms to the right holder to do things as they wish, right? So, so those two functions can also be found in the law of nations. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one deals with contractual obligations. Uh, this is an incredibly important topic, um, not just in legal theory in general, um, but it touches upon um, the question, the more, more practical question about uh, treaty obligations. So which fall under the category of contracts. Now, there's a long debate in medieval jurisprudence, which, uh, you know, we don't have to go into detail here because, you know, a lot of this is outlined in uh, in the book. This is largely in chapter two. Um, but Bowdoin asks the question, you know, if, if one enters into a contract with another party, um, you know, say a verbal obligation, or, or even if you just write it down, um, are there obligations that are imposed on both sides? And the, the general answer here is that, well, yes, contracts are always binding. Uh, those who are into contracts are required to perform them. Um, now, there are all kinds of exceptions that lawyers will uh, will identify. But the general rule is that, uh, you know, pacta sunt servanda, you know, um, contracts, agreements must be performed. Um, where does Bowdoin fit into this? Well, in... In his discussion about sovereignty, he actually has an extensive discussion about why contractual obligations are different from legal obligations with respect to sovereigns. Sovereigns create laws and their commands. They take the structure of commands that are imposed on subordinates. Um, so laws can always be changed by sovereigns, right? Because it's their own creation, right? If I command you to drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road, as the case may be, um, you know, the, the sovereign as the one who's created that rule can always unmake that rule or to amend or change that rule because, and it doesn't apply to the one who's making that rule. So the same sort of relationship doesn't apply to contractual obligations because the, the parties who enter into contractual agreements are in a sense equals of each other. Um, and there's this great line in book one, chapter eight, where he talks about this issue, where he says that, you know, just because one is a sovereign, um, it does not exempt one from the force of having to perform uh, contractual obligations that one freely has entered into. So in other words, I, I can't make a contract with you. Um, and suppose that I'm a sovereign, I can't simply say, well, too bad, I'm going to, I'm not going to perform the debt that I owe you just because I'm sovereign, I'm going to cancel my debt. Um, mm. It doesn't work that way. Right, because the rules that govern contractual obligations are derived from the law of nations and from natural law, and and he goes into a lot of technical detail about how that works. Um, let me just say one more thing on this before, um, because I I spent a lot of time on this on this topic that it was just so fascinating for me. His position was actually a minority opinion that he was developing, um, 
you know, a lot of people were not happy with his conclusion, which, uh, which basically states that sovereigns are bound to perform their contracts, including treaty obligations. And the target here actually were canon lawyers who were very happy to say that whoever has absolute power, canon lawyers who were thinking about the Pope, right? The Pope's uh, potentia absoluta, which is actually the canonist term for absolute power. Um, the Pope can always cancel contractual obligations. That's part of what it means to be a Pope um, and to have the absolute powers of the papacy. Um, Bowden was very carefully borrowing that canonist language, um, but he didn't want to follow the canonists to their conclusion, which is that even popes can exempt themselves or exempt others from obligations from the law of nations and from natural law. And so he, uh, so he actually finds himself having to defend this tougher position that he happens to have uh, carved out for himself, it seems. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, I mean, this is one of the ways in which he tries to restrict himself. Um, just on the other side, though, um, you know, as I mentioned, the Law of Nations opens up, uh, what would you call it, permissions, right? And so, and, you know, one of the things that is important for him here is with respect to the sort of responsibilities that sovereigns owe with respect to uh, foreigners. And, and this is something that I cover in the conclusion of the book, because, you know, oftentimes those who write about the history of sovereignty um, see Bowdoin as the enemy with respect to, you know, modern thinking about sovereignty in connection with, say, uh, the, the, the responsibility to protect doctrine, the R2P doctrine, um, sovereignty as a kind of responsibility to provide protection. Bodan actually anticipated all of this because it goes back to the obligations that are imposed by these higher legal sources. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so the obligations that are imposed by the law of nations are both in relation to sovereigns and their own subjects, but also with sovereigns in relation to other sovereigns and sovereigns even in relation to the subjects of other sovereigns. Am I, am I getting that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Because in mm. what, I mean, one of the one of the things that he he will say is that the these higher laws don't make any distinction between your rank or your status. You know, just because you're a sovereign doesn't doesn't exempt you or doesn't excuse you from having to perform those same obligations. Right. Mm. So it, the the law is blind with respect to whether or not you're a sovereign or a subject, a foreigner or a citizen. Right. Those distinctions um, don't matter for these higher laws. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, I mean, one, one thing uh, that, that then came to my mind is what exactly is the subject of sovereignty in the kind of law of nations that Bowdoin is, is dealing with and imagining? Uh, of course, the Treaty of Westphalia occurs in 1648. So he is, mm. you know, we can debate about how important the Treaty of Westphalia in mm-hmm. fact was, but, but, he have, but, but all that, that's to say that Bowdoin d- does live in a pre-Westphalian world in some sense, right? Like when the precise architecture of what counts as a political community is still in flux uh, to some degree. So what is the subject of the law of nations exactly? Yeah, no, that's that's a really great question. Um, I mean, I guess, let me just clarify. Are you asking about the subject of the law of nations or the subject of a sovereign? Because I think there are two the, different answers to this. They, they are two different. So let's start with the first then. Like, who Who is the law of nations recognizing as uh, the bearer of sovereignty, the bearer of a right to sovereignty? I see. Um, well, so there, there are a number of different ways one can come to sovereignty. And, you know, Bodin actually... He, he doesn't spend too much time on this. I mean, one would think that this is a really important question, uh, but he doesn't spend too much time on this. But he actually offers uh, a couple of clues about how one comes to sovereignty. Conquest in warfare, which is the most important way by which one acquires sovereignty um, through commercial transactions, right? So, you know, one can purchase sovereignty. Um, but he, there are moments where he also talks about uh, occupation. So, and, you know, this has become a big topic in a lot of recent literature on, you know, the sources of modern empires, uh, how the, the right of occupation kind of ripens into a right of sovereignty. And, and you know, Bowdoin uses that sort of rule um, in sort of so, uh, some contexts. Um, much of his discussion, however, is on the right of conquest. If you fight a, a licit or a legally recognized war against another country or another state or another people, and you conquer them, those that you've conquered, uh, the conqueror has a right to turn into subjects. Now, 
there's there's a darker history to this, and and this is something that I cover, um, if I remember, I think in chapter three, which is that um, many of these rules about occupation actually derive from rules about enslavement. Uh, in fact, he'll actually say that the first sovereign, at least according to biblical history, um, was Nimrod. You know, the, the the mighty hunter Nimrod, and you know, there's a story in in Genesis after the flood. Um, you know, um, war, conquest, the use of violence to conquer and subject others was first discovered. And Nimrod, by using warfare, by using force to subject others and to enslave those that he conquered, was the foundation of the, the ancient Assyrian state. Now, one of the questions, one of the problems for Baldan was, if you conquer someone, or if you conquer an entire people, turn them into your slaves... At what point do they become subjects? Um, what is the difference between being a subject to a sovereign and a slave to a master? In the earliest stages of history, there was no difference. To be a subject was also to be a slave of a master. Your master was also your sovereign. But at some point in time, that sort of conceptual distinction had to take place, whereby the dominium over slaves had to be distinguished from the imperium, that is the authority that one exercises over subjects, who don't necessarily have to be slaves. Um, and you know, a lot of what happens in chapter three, you know, I, I walk through some of the details of how he tries to pull those ideas separately, so that you don't have to be a slave in order to be a subject. You can be a free subject, um, which I think anticipates some of the ideas that one finds in Grotius uh, and in Hobbes later on. Um, Anyway, so that's the case with subjects, um, or, or sorry, with uh, sovereigns and, and subjects. But what, what was what, what was the other side of this? Maybe you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm just struck by in, in what you were saying is this: just that um, the not not just any body or any group of persons who are subjecting a group, you know, another group to their will through force can be recognized as a sovereign. There is something distinctive mm. about uh, the kind of, of sovereignty. So the, the kind of state that Bodin imagines, for example, is different from, say, a gang of pirates subjecting yes. a group of people to their will, right? Yes, that's actually right. And that's really important for him. I mean, this, um, you know, this, this metaphor of the band of pirates, the band of robbers, I mean, ultimately comes from Cicero. And, yeah. you know, Cicero uses it in De Officiis because he's, uh, he, you know, he, he's also, Cicero is also thinking about, um, you know, what counts as lawful warfare, you know, bellum licitum as the term that's used, as opposed to mere violence, you know, mere uh, piracy or mere bigandry, uh, brigandage, um, latrocinia, uh, which is the term that uh, that Cicero uses. And, and by the way, um, Bodin actually uses this language right on the first page of De Republica because it's very important for his purposes. Um, but the difference between the two is that lawful warfare, um, which has to be properly declared uh, and follows certain recognized rules of engagement. Um, they can generate certain rights, including rights of conquest, rights of enslavement, that pirates do not have. You know, so you can't just go around and simply assert violence and expect to create your own country by simply, you know, putting your flag down on someone else's uh, someone else's land or someone else's territory. That's that's not going to do it. Um, statehood is ultimately uh, a relationship, a relational concept between sovereign mm. and subject. It's not about uh, taking over someone else's land. I mean, th- there was one other thing I just wanted to say. Um, because you mentioned Westphalia before, and right. one, I mean, this is probably a, con- a, a conclusion I arrived at that I, I'm, that it, I've, it may be a bit controversial. I'm not sure how far I can push this, but the, the conclusion I put there was that I, I actually don't think that Bodin's theory of sovereignty is a concept of territorial sovereignty. Territory actually isn't all that important to Bodin. Um, it, it, I mean, it's not that he doesn't, I mean, of course he thinks territory is important for a state, but it's not, he doesn't agree with, um, or at least he doesn't anticipate what contemporary political theorists now refer to as the particularity thesis, which is that the state is entitled to a particular um, space, a particular geographical territory as their exclusive own. That's not the sort of thing that Baudin uh, seems to allow. I think in part because He's still dealing with all of this mess of uh, feudal titles and, and 
uh, feudal claims to land that sometimes can be overlapping with jurisdiction. Instead, I think his concept of sovereignty is entirely relational. Right? Mm. Sovereignty, the, the relation between the sovereign and the subject um, is all that's necessary for sovereignty. So, you know, subjects can be scattered all over the world and you can still be one state. Um, one way I've tried to illustrate this is to think about families, because he often says that families, which are under the authority of one paterfamilial uh, patriarch, you can still be one family, even if the members of the family are scattered all about the world. And so he'll say the same thing about the state. Um, and, and I think in, one reason for this is because he's imagining all of this before the Westphalian um, you know, model or at least pattern has you know become kind of standardized. You know? There's still a lot, a lot of contestation about this. Yeah, that's really, really, really fascinating. I mean, the fact that we can think about sovereignty as a relation outside of the paradigm of territory, really, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And so yeah. I think part of what I wanted to do here is to get us to reimagine what that might look like. Um, uh, and, you know, I, you know, there are a lot of critics of sovereignty even today that try to say, you know, can we have sovereignty without borders or without territoriality? And it seems to me that I think um, Bowden is actually one of the most important sources for encouraging us to think along those lines. Yeah. I mean, that does bring me to to a point that uh, I wanted to make, which is, um, you know, it, you note that the idea of sovereignty as a legal right that's contingent on responsibility, on the performance of certain duties has become newly prominent in international relations. And uh, well, you mentioned earlier, uh, most obviously, the United Nations report on the responsibility to protect from 2005, which specifies criteria for legitimate sovereignty and legitimate statehood. So what do you think is to be gained from returning to Baudin now, now that this idea of sovereignty as, as responsibility and perhaps as relational seems to be making a bit of a comeback? Well, so I think one important thing that I wanted to say in this book is that only talking about the right of sovereignty gives us only 50% of the picture. Because if you have rights, you're also capable of duties and obligations. And I think that was a really important message that Bowdoin wanted to communicate in talking about the rights of sovereignty. Um, I think we only get a partial picture if we just look at what the law of nations empowers sovereigns or allows sovereigns to do with those rights. You know, So it's not just about the right of sovereigns to conduct war, to declare war, to make laws, um, you, you know, uh, uh, you know, to to establish courts, establish government, governing officials. I mean, that's all essential to sovereignty, of course. But there's the whole other side where the reason why sovereigns have these powers is because there's certain restrictions, requirements, responsibilities that ultimately derive from the law of nature uh, and from the law of nations. Um, and so in the final chapter of the book, I, I looked at what some of those duties might be. And what's interesting in Baudet is that he often uses the phrase uh, officia humanitatis. Uh, it's it's a Stoic phrase that I, I think can be translated in a number of different ways. Um, you know, Cicero uses it. Uh, I think it appears in Lactantius um, as well as in uh, Seneca. But it's it it means something like um, duties of hospitality, uh, of gratitude, duties of courtesy that are owed to others, and. This is sort of the other side of having the rights of sovereignty. The reason why states have these sovereign rights, you know, this this indivisible bundle of rights that are that every state is supposed to have, in part is to promote these duties of humanity, to to assist, to provide mutual aid to other states, um, and and all for the purpose of fortifying the bonds of humanity. Um, you, you know, I, I think one of the important things that I try to track in this book is how much um, classical and particularly Stoic ideas about the, uh, you know, Ciceronian language, the societas humani generis, that is the, the, the association of the whole, the whole of humanity, um, you know, becomes something that even Baudin is very much concerned about. You know, he's not thinking in terms of a Westphalian world where every state is kind of a little island um, that's cut apart from everyone else. That's not his picture. His picture is that humanity is, you know, kind of one association. It's the starting point, but humanity is pretty weak. You know, our bonds, you know, we're not really tied to each other um, 
by very strong bonds. And so one of the reasons why we have sovereigns is to fortify those bonds that were tied to each other um, by performing these uh, these acts of gratitude, these acts of hospitality. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting what some of these, the, concretely what some of these duties are. Um, you know, sovereigns have duties to, uh, for example, uh, not to devalue currency. Um, sovereigns have duties to uh, promote trade, commerce, traffic. Uh, you know, all of these are the sort of things that uh, enable uh, engagement, engage, uh, enable relations between states, between peoples. Um, you know, makes possible um, getting people to recognize that you know we're not separated into different nations and different states, but actually we're part of one common human. Um, you know, community, I guess, if you want. So I think it anticipates mm. a lot of the ideas that you find, even in the 21st century. And it's a very different Baudin than I think the one that, um, you know, this kind of caricature Baudin that has often been uh, presented. And so I think there's a lot that we can pull out of here to, um, you know, to kind of reconstruct some of that that history, I think. Yeah, that's really what struck me. I mean, this the Baudin you present is really a figure with a cosmopolitan sensibility, for for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I I, th- I certainly think so. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So, um, finally, what are you working on now? Are you continuing to work on on Jean Baudin? I know you're editing that volume of his writings, um, as as part of a project as well, right? Yes, that well. So the the distributio was uh, one of the important sources that that I needed for this project. In fact, one of the reasons why that book was important was because he Bodin uses a lot of technical legal vocabulary, and I think for a lot of readers of Bodin, it's not clear what he means um, or how he's twisting certain uh, terminology from classical Roman law or from canon law. And so th- this work is actually very valuable for me um, in trying to see how he's trying to generalizing. Uh, you know, presenting a, I guess what you would call general jurisprudence for his contemporaries. So, um, so this, it's going to be a book of a couple chapters, some essays and and the actual original text uh, that has been translated and edited by, uh, by one of my former graduate students, Jason Brown. Um, uh, He did a fabulous job on it. And so hopefully that will be out fairly soon. You know, so in terms of new work, um, I, so there are a couple things that I've been interested in. I think the, the general term that I've used to, you know, umbrella term for this new project is called the science of right. And in some ways, it's um, it's a history of rights, um, but it, it's looking at how how rights have been imagined and and changed in the civil law world of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. Um, and so many of the texts that I've been focusing a lot on will be uh, Grotius, Buffendorf, um, some other figures like Leibniz, uh, Achenwald, Thomasius, uh, many of these continental jurists, as well as um, Dutch jurists that uh, I think have been overlooked. But I've I've actually found myself spending a lot of time with them, um, uh, Vinius and uh, Vogt, um, that I, I, perhaps uh, some of your listeners in legal history may be familiar with, but I've I've been spending a lot of time recovering that material. Related to this, I've also been very interested in deontic logic and the history of deontic logic. Um, If uh, what, what I think one of the ways that I've gotten into this is through the work of Brian Tierney. And this is actually one of his last projects before he passed away uh, very recently. Um, he, He wrote a book on the permissive aspects of natural law and I thought was really eye-opening for me was the way that he talked about how law um, can be modeled by deontic logic in terms of its permissive aspects as well as its obligatory aspects. And uh, I think if you look at those two aspects in uh, in, in many of these texts, I mean, you'll find it all over Pufendorf as well as in Grotius. And so a lot of what I want to do is to, um, you know, see what potential contributions to the prehistory of deontic logic can be found in these earlier sources. Um, anyway, that's keeping me busy and uh, you know, we'll see how that'll go. That's great. I look really looking forward to both those projects and to the edited volume. Uh, well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. And let me just congratulate you on the book, uh, The Right of Sovereignty, by the way. This is, um, I think this is uh, excellent and really interesting, not just for people who work on early modern political thought uh, and legal thought, but actually for anyone generally interested in, in the issue of international law, of state sovereignty, 
um, as you said, these themes are now salient again in the 21st century. And I think there is a lot to be gained by, by revisiting Baudin's moment. I, I, that's certainly my hope. I think there is a place for sovereignty, and I, I, and I think one of the great debates that theorists have to conduct is what should that purpose be? What should be the function of sovereignty? And that's going to require us going back to many of these foundational sources, and that, that was certainly my original uh, purpose in writing this book. So anyway, thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed this very much. Thank you so much.